From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. Welcome back to another episode of My Capital Idea. This is Michael Williams with the Defenders of Capitalism Project, and we're here with a very special guest, Clay Doak. Clay was our Defenders of Capitalism winner for 2022. Some some of our listeners, we're, we're getting a broader listener group now, so I maybe need to explain what is the Defenders of Capitalism Award and who is LPR and all that kind of stuff, but we'll, we'll get into that. I just want everyone to say hello to, to Clay. Thank you for having me, Mike. Yeah, I really appreciate you being here. So as I said, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with the leadership program of the Rockies and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, we're based here in Colorado. We have something called the Leadership Program of the Rockies. It's a nine-month program where we teach people skills around the founding of America, the founding documents, the essential ideas of freedom and the American experiment, as well as uh, free market capitalism. And we have a competition called the Defenders of Capitalism Award. And Clay was, our, as I said, our winner for that award in 2022, just a little over a year ago. Clay, I wanted to, before we dive into some of these other things you and I talked about, uh, um, I wanted to ask you about how did you get involved? You may have told me this, but how did you get involved in LPR in the first place? What, what was it that attracted you to our whole deal there? Sure. So I have a client, I work for an engineering consulting firm, and we have a client who runs an oil and gas company, and she had been in LPR in, I think, 2012. And, you know, we'd had many discussions touching on many of the things that, you know, important to me. And she said, you have to join this program. And so that's how I got involved. Cool. So was it what you expected? I was better. It was absolutely better than what I expected. For that's sure. That's great. Well, we'll yeah. hopefully dive into that a little bit. Um, and it's good. Again, the Defenders of Capitalism Project is a separate entity uh, that provides services to LPR, the leadership program in the Rockies. But it's great to hear that you had such a good experience. And and it is sort of an organic thing where we, we have most of our recruits, most of the people who go through the program actually are coming from alumni, people who've been through the program before and have heard about it. Was there anything that she told you that sold you on, on saying, yeah, I should, I should do that? Was it just her integrity and what you knew about her? Absolutely. Absolutely. She, you know, she had actually worked for Cato Institute at one point, And so I, I took what she said quite seriously on the subject, for sure. So was the Defenders of Capitalism Project, that piece of the program, uh, was it what you expected? Uh, to some extent, yes. You know, I approach things sort of as an empiricist most of the time, so it's all about the consequences, the results. You know, the Defender of Capitalism Project, it, it helped me make more concrete the moral case for it, right? And I had read many of the, you know, I'd read Ayn Rand before, you know, Friedrich Hayek and but it was incredibly beneficial for making the moral case rather than just the, the after effects. Well, those of who have been listening to our podcast for a while know that's what we try to emphasize. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of people out there uh, who are involved in politics or involved in economics who, who are pretty good at making the case for, hey, this works. This is a better way to go about life. This is a, you know, having free trade and voluntary associations, all the things that we associate with capitalism— uh, including the immense physical material wealth that it produces, most people kind of appreciate that. But I think, you know, hopefully that's what we, we try to do is 
make it a little bit more of a unique argument, because we think that's the essential part, is that people need to get over the hump and say, okay, how do I understand this from a moral standpoint? And we'll, we'll dive into all that. But I, you know, what's interesting is I haven't really gotten to know you that much, and I wanted to. And so, I re- again, I appreciate you making time to be out here. Tell us about your background. I mean, uh, you mentioned you know, you're, you're an empiricist, you know, you're, uh, you're a petroleum engineer, you, you know, you have uh, quite an intellectual background. You, you went to school, the School of Mines, both for your undergrad and your master's. You know, so you've got a scientific mind. Uh, there's not, you know, too many people who can get into mines without having a, a pretty good brain horsepower. But what was it that interested you, first of all, in, in science? Even before you get into the petroleum field, what was it that interested you in, in that kind of math and science background? Well, I- I think it goes back to my childhood. I grew up in Ray, Colorado, north of town on a farm. And, you know, my parents were highly involved in certain types of bird conservation. And we had these sort of magical natural history books at home. And so, you know, reading through them, I I eventually came to absolutely love sort of the natural world. And I found that I had a, you know, talent for um, the sciences. And, you know, when I went into mines originally, I had no idea what I was going to study, even though my dad was in the petroleum industry. Uh, But I ended up picking petroleum for a couple reasons, but the primary reason was that it was the most hybridized of all disciplines, right? What do you mean hybridized? So it's sort of a combination of many different kinds of sciences and engineering. I mean, you have to be experts in fluid flow, in mechanics of materials, even in economics. Actually, the petroleum engineers do all the economics forecasts. And so it it just seemed to be a natural fit for somebody who is likely to get bored easily. <laughs> is that you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that's interesting. Uh, you know, we have a few things in common. Not, not necessarily the aptitude for science. I, I'm pretty good at math. Uh, you know, obviously in finance, you have to be a little bit, have an aptitude for math. But you mentioned that you grew up on a farm out in eastern Colorado. And I don't know if I ever told you this, but uh, I didn't grow up. But my grandmother had a ranch in uh, outside of Laramie, Wyoming. Um, so I spent a lot of time up there, and it's funny because my siblings and my my cousins and I all have lots of stories about growing up, you know, out out in nature, like you're you're talking about. Uh, did you work on the farm? What kind of farming did you guys do? So it's it's uh, corn. Um, you know, every once in a while I would help, but mostly it was it was my dad. But generally, no, I, I didn't do a lot of the hard labor. We had chores yeah. and you had to feed the animals. But in terms of the, the farming itself, not necessarily. Was that ever appealing to, to go into farming? Uh, not necessarily, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not really, no. Yeah. Even though I think it's wonderful. And, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing to me how much farming has changed since I was a kid, right? The innovation yep. uh, is incredible. Yep, definitely. So um, you're you're in high school thinking, well, uh, I'm going to go to college and maybe I'll go into the sciences, maybe not, or whatever. You're, you're trying to decide what you want to do as far as a academics. How, what made you choose mines? To some extent, um, you know, I'm not entirely sure. I had wanted to go there because it's reputation. Right? Yeah. But it's one of those places where it was just sort of expected that I go there. And I didn't have any qualms about it. Yeah. Uh, certainly. 
Yeah, it's. Uh, I have a second cousin who's there right now, and awesome. he's he's a really bright kid, and I have nothing but respect for the people who go to and and teach it. I've met a mm-hmm. number of uh, instructors and professors at Mines, and it's it's an impressive place. So you go and get uh, your undergrad in science, and then you decide to go for a master's. Right now, is that because? Uh, that you were then, okay, I'm on a career track for the petroleum industry, and I want to get that higher academic credential? Well, my parents and I had a deal that made it beneficial for me to get my master's degree. And, you know, I, I, I loved it so much that I felt like it was worth it to go through the process. And I don't regret it for a second. I, the master's degree was fantastic. You so know. your parents were deal makers. They were capitalists mm. at heart. As right. In. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's good. So um, then when you graduated from uh, mines, was it just, okay, it's clear I'm, I'm going into the petroleum industry? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard as a petroleum, as somebody who's educated as a petroleum engineer to parlay that into certain other fields. You almost always go into the petroleum industry. So Clay, if you weren't a petroleum engineer and in that field, what would you be doing? That's an excellent question. You know, when I was a kid, I was, frankly, always been fascinated by almost everything. But at one point, I wanted to be a genetic engineer. At another point, I wanted to be a nuclear physicist. Um, To be frank about it, I'm really glad I didn't become a nuclear physicist. Uh, But uh, it could have been any number of things in the end. So what's the best part of the career that you chose? You know, I, I, I am not bored. That's the first thing. So I work for a consulting firm, as I mentioned. And it is never the same thing. And it's, it's also great to see projects from inception, from idea, all the way through execution. And some of these projects are immense. The other thing is, you know, although my degree is in petroleum engineering, we deal with stuff that's atypical for petroleum engineers. For example, high-capacity injection wells, um, helium wells, also in-situ mining of essentially baking soda. Um, we also have a client that does in-situ mining of uranium. So these are not typical things that a petroleum engineer would deal with, but they are fields in which a petroleum engineering degree is incredibly useful. So is that unique to the company and the, and the business and the consulting work that you do as far as having that kind of variety? Yes. That's great. Um, so, and I, I was also reading a little bit about your biography. You've published some works. I, I saw that you'd published some stuff at Stanford. Well, so the, it's, it was published at the Stanford Geothermal Workshop, and it's about geothermal wells. We wrote it with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Uh, geothermal wells have kind of a unique set of issues that oil and gas wells don't tend to have. They're hotter, generally speaking, uh, but also the formations tend to be buggy. They tend to have big holes in them. And so there's something called lost circulation that occurs when you drill a well. Uh, it's bad. And uh, What does that mean, lost circulation? So when you drill an oil and gas well, you pump something called mud down the pipe that you're drilling, out the, down through the bit, and then up the annular space. Uh, it helps cool the bit. It also pulls the cuttings, the things you actually, the bits of rock out away from under the bit. But you need to maintain that in order to keep control of the well. In geothermal wells, it's, it's difficult to do. What will typically happen is they'll encounter a lost circulation zone, they'll go down, they'll cement it off. They'll try to force cement into these vugs that are, you know, stealing basically the, the, the mud fluid that, that keeps the, the, pressure, the system pressure in equilibrium. But what often happens is they'll drill through this cement plug and then they'll just lose circulation again. 
And so it becomes a huge portion of the cost for those kind of wells. It's quite difficult to drill a geothermal well and, ha and well um, and efficiently because of that, because you just don't know when, when it will be a problem and when it won't. Huh. So when you talk about a G, and I mean, forgive my ignorance, I mean, you're getting, I, I could ask some really good questions that I don't even have any clue about what I'm asking, <laughs> but I'm curious, when you say a geothermal well, is that a geothermal well to extract water and heat or to, are you still talking about for petroleum? Water and heat. It, it's, it's not a petroleum well at all in that case. Okay. So yeah. it's, it's one of those things where you're trying to, uh, you're drilling down for the energy and maybe the water as well, mm -hmm. but it's, it's more porous in that sense? It's more porous. Usually it's because the geothermal wells tend to be in volcanic rocks. Uh -huh. And so if you've ever picked up a piece of pumice, basically, it's light. It's got all these holes in it. Um, that's essentially what you drill through often when you drill a geothermal well. So, um, and again, I'm, I'm kind of doing the rabbit hole thing because I'm interested, but is your job right now as a consultant... Is it mainly, you know, evaluating models, doing computer work, looking at studies of geography, or are you actually out in the field at all ever? So I'm, I'm an office employee almost universally. Every once in a while I'll get out to the field, but uh, primarily what I do is I handle the reservoir engineering piece. My group handles the reservoir engineering piece. Uh, so we use incredibly sophisticated computer models to in an attempt to model the behavior of any number of things. You know, the uh, Trona mining, for example, is, you know, we've, we can use our software for that, but it's more typically used for in the oil and gas context. Uh -huh. And, you know, oil and gas fluid flow through porous media, it can get very complicated very quickly. Even though, I mean, it operates in, you know, those, those systems and the fluids in them operate much like a soda can, right? You have uh, gas in solution, you reduce the pressure, the gas comes out of solution. Uh, but when you do that downhole and in porous media, it can result in some very complicated flow behavior. So I want to jump into, I mean, you said you had some economics, economic exposure mm -hmm. uh, at mines, but at least during the, the competition for the Defenders of Capitalism Award, you seem like you had a greater knowledge than maybe uh, someone who with an undergrad of economics. Is that because they do really a better job at mines at actually educating petroleum people about economics, or you just have an interest? It's primarily because I had an interest, but also as a graduate student, I actually spent a lot of time in the econ department. Um, this is actually how I got I have an acknowledgement in the book International Energy Markets by Dr. Carol Dahl. It was because I was a graduate student huh. when she taught her graduate-level course on that subject. Um, so there was some additional exposure... Uh, as a graduate student, minds you're required to take an econ course as an undergrad. I'm, I don't recall it being particularly good. But um, I, for whatever reason, I find economics absolutely fascinating. Um, and so I read outside of that as well. Yeah, that's, that was pretty obvious. You, you kind of ran away. I mean, I, I, I don't want to discount. Uh, you, it was a competitive year and we had lots of really good uh, candidates for our award, but you kind of ran away with it at the end there. It was obvious that these weren't really new ideas for you, at least from what I could tell. But I'm, I'm curious about the whole econ experience at Mines. Do you know Charlie McNeil? Do you, do you know the, I mean, he, I went to the, the session where they cut the ribbon on his new building at the School of Mines for it's the McNeil, McNeil um, Center for Innovation, Innovation. and Entrepreneurialism. Yep. I think that's right. Yeah. Entrepreneurship, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I know his, uh, his emphasis was to say, you know, we, we want to make sure that we keep that spirit alive 
of entrepreneurialism in in the whole curriculum at Mines, and and they have some really cool things that they're doing there. I was just curious if you had some exposure to that, although that's more recently than, right. than since you were in attendance there. But tell us more about you know if you have you know as you're studying economics and the science that you're studying, um, if you ha- if you develop certain ideas. You know, around free markets as it relates to energy production and things like that. I mean, energy is such a, uh, it's a hot button topic for lots of people in the U.S. all mm-hmm. over the world today. Um, and you know, there, there's all kinds of controversy with regard to how things are extracted from the earth and the emissions. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to dive into that a little bit. If you had if you had some ideas originally, uh, you know, once you graduated from the School of Mines, on economics and energy production from that standpoint? Well, you know, in a way, the petroleum industry provides a stark contrast, right? The United States is essentially the only country in the world where minerals are owned by private individuals. Everywhere else, they're state enterprises. And you can see a vast difference in the way companies approach problems and how efficient they are in the execution of getting things done on that basis alone. It's very clear that the large state-owned enterprises, there's a lot of corruption and politicking going on that does not happen in, in the private industries and the private companies. Now, you're saying just from an observation standpoint, being familiar with the, the way energy is dealt with around mm-hmm. the world, do you think, I mean, and again, maybe this is kind of a, a, a softball question, but uh, do you think there's there's a connection to that? I mean, the way, the way that... Uh, if you have collective ownership of something, what happens then? You know, uh, duh, is it is it going to be as efficient as if you have private property? Um, but did you, I mean, maybe growing up on a farm, uh, although I know people who are, you know, have a farming background who are socialists, uh, they don't really they don't really understand private property. They don't understand, sure. you know, the the whole idea of rights protection and 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 free trade. Uh, they maybe have an appreciation more than the average person for the production end of food or mm-hmm. or agricultural products and so forth. But did you have that, uh, I mean, growing up? Did you Was that instilled by your parents? Well, I, I think that my kind of an interest in, in economics was certainly built into the conversations I had with my parents. But with respect to mineral production and when, you're pre- when you have a fixed stock of something, it wasn't really until I was a graduate student at Mines that I had this light bulb moment where... No, actually, it is not in your benefit to rape and pillage the earth. If you have a fixed stock of something, it is in your benefit to care for it, yeah. right? And um, that's one thing. There was a class at the Colorado School of Mines called Natural Resource Economics, and they started with Harold Hotelling, right? He wrote a, a paper in 1931. I think it was published in April in the Journal of Political Economy, and it was called The Economics of Exhaustible Resources. And that's exactly what it said, Right where you have a fixed stock of something and you have and the forward you know the the futures market is is in contango right you have increasing prices in time it is to your benefit to allocate that production in time right to maximize your own benefit right so you're not you're not burning everything to the ground all at once and and left with nothing right it is the maintenance of this fixed stock as you move along and so I think it wasn't until I was a graduate student that it really clicked. So you're using that term fixed stock. Right. And uh, assuming that you're referring to reserves, energy, mineral reserves, but I'm even confused on that. I, I, um, 
I've read things about, and in the whole fracking industry, which you know is you know kind of your wheelhouse, didn't that change the whole dynamic of what we consider to be fixed stock? Absolutely, and this that's you know the media tends to use the word reserves incorrectly, right? Reserves to the petroleum engineers is that which is extractable with current technology economically right now. Everything else is not technically reserves. And so what fracking did is it brought whole new volumes into quote-unquote reserves, right? So it's a, a totally dynamic, depends on the price even. So, um, but you're absolutely right. And there are, you know, immense reasons why, um, you know, fracking, I mean, it changed the world. And it's, the interesting thing about it is it's not really high science. They'd been doing fracking for some time, right? But, you know, if you do a little mental Fermi problem, you know, normally we complete wells so that they're vertical through the production zones, through the zone where there's oil and gas. Um, and to be clear, I'm not sure if, you know, who knows this or doesn't, we don't produce oil and gas from caverns. They're rocks that actually have poor throats in them and, you know, fluid will flow through them. But if you have a vertical well, and let's say the, the formation's 50 feet tall, your contact area through the productive zone, it would be 2 pi r times h. Right, and if you assume H is fifty, um, R, let's set it at 0.25, and you, you then you have times two, so that would be uh, 78.5 square feet of surface area. Right, but if Clay, you know, you're losing me. I, <laughs> our right. producer is fine; <laughs> she's got a science background. Well, but go ahead. Well, so so it. I'll get there. It's but if you hydraulically fracture the well, your contact area with the formation will be something more like fifty times two hundred times four. Okay. So that's ten thousand times forty thousand square feet versus hundred and seventy eight and a half square feet, right? It's an immense difference. And and that kind of thing matters because when we produce it might surprise people, you know, from what we produce oil and gas, the Niagara formation that's up here. Uh, north in the DJ, north of Denver in the DJ Basin, has less permeability, that is less ability to flow fluid through it, than the concrete sidewalk outside. Wow. It's very, very low perm. Wow. But we can produce hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil. So that whole idea of reserves, is, it, is there a standard, an international standard for thinking about, okay, here's what we mean by reserves, and, and they're all talking the same language. When, when you talk about reserves in, in Saudi Arabia or Venezuela or, or some other oil-producing state, are they using the same language? So, yes. In the oil and gas industry, we have sort of private affiliation groups that have definitions for all this, but it's generally understood in the oil and gas industry. When we talk about reserves, we mean that which I can produce right now at current technology at current prices. Is that the same thing uh, in all of geology? If you're talking about mining, um, uh, not just petroleum, uh, but if you're talking about uh, metals or is it the same sort of definition with regard to reserves? I believe it is. Yeah. Yeah. My whole thinking on this has evolved just in, in understanding about uh, energy production um, and how, I mean, is there anything to the fact that some of these even even non-fracked wells that, that are surprising people and saying, okay, well, we thought that was depleted, but now it seems like it regenerated or, or mm -hmm. I mean, do they even understand where the oil is coming from or where the gas is coming from? Is it really, you know, is it really fossil fuels? Is, it, is that a, a correct label for it? 
So not quite. Um, it's not necessarily dead dinosaurs. Yeah. It's actually dead plant matter. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, as with basically all energy sources, uh, frankly, on the planet, it it's well, exception of nuclear. Um, it's its ultimate origin is the sun, yeah. solar energy. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned nuclear, and I'm curious if you have thoughts on that as well. But so I, I was trying to get you to get, go down the path of the politics of, of energy right mm-hmm. now. The conflict that we have about uh, climate change, global warming, those kinds of things, and how that's been at least, there's been a narrative created by environmental groups uh, about, and the conflict that it has with regard to how we produce energy. You know, as a new freshly minted petroleum engineer, did you have political views on that? Or did you kind of go, well, you know, I'm just interested in the science of it. I, I think I pretty much eschewed the politics. Um, I was far more interested in the science of it and the engineering of it. But, you know, you're absolutely right. There's been this narrative created that this is an imminent emergency. But I do believe that there's sort of, there's a coming reinterjection of reason into all of this. The um, IPCC sort of quietly abandoned what's called RCP 8.5. That's a relative concentration pathway 8.5, which was one that was, cited a lot by the media, but it wasn't even close to rational, right? The assumptions that they made in that model were absolute lunacy. And so they quietly abandoned it. I think there's going to be more of that. Um, I sure hope so. Yeah, hopefully that's uh, even even more beyond the energy debate, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the reintroduction of reason <laughs> and rationality <laughs> into our culture would be a welcome thing. And that would only support the the case for uh, uh, both championing and defending capitalism as a social system. Were you did you said you, you were primarily interested in the science initially, but did you grow up in a political household? Did you guys talk about politics, or was it was that something that you guys? There was some discussion of politics, but it wasn't a lot. I know that um, you know the the only really memorable political discussion I ever had with my father is that I was. I said I was a Democrat when I was eight or so. I was quite young. And my dad just asked me the question, at what cost? <laughs> and, and that was all it took. Really? Right? Yeah. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. He didn't beat you over the head no, and say— No, he didn't you, beat me over the or head. Or support you necessarily. He yeah. just said, well, at what cost? Yeah. So would he, have, would he have said the same thing? If you said I'm a Republican, and I'm presuming maybe he was, I don't know. Indeed, but, yeah. uh, but if he said, if, he, if you said— uh, I'm a Republican dad. Would he would he ask the same thing? I'm not sure he would have said much at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Um, so, do you have other thoughts today? Now that you're you know you're a seasoned veteran and and have this kind of experience in the field, do you have other thoughts today about about the whole politicization of the energy field? Well, I think it's I think frankly it's even worse than that. I think we have this politicization of science itself, and it it actually terrifies me. Um, you know. Uh, it's scary to me how, in a way, I don't know if I would want to call it the, the Platonization of science, like this this science has been turned into mysticism almost. Um, and that's not the way it's supposed to Talk be. Talk more about that, the Platonism. I mean, well, now we can get into my area instead of some of this <laughs> science stuff, more of the philosophical thing. So you're referring to Plato. Plato, the right. The whole Platonic uh, idealism. Talk more about that in terms of the science and the way we think about science. Well, science ultimately, I mean, it's Aristotelian in nature, right? You know, the world exists. Um, it's there. It's a fact. You know, your primary method for determining you know, what's going on in the world is empiricism. 
it's not some broader, you know, to me, Plato is all mysticism in my mind, but it's, it's something that's, you know, in an Aristotelian sense, it's deeply connected to the physical world. Yeah. And things are what they are. So back to the, the, uh, the idea of various sources of energy. Uh, the reading I've done over the last few years is these fossil fuels or these uh, hydrocarbons, the discovery and innovation of using them as an energy source really was part and parcel of the whole Industrial Revolution mm -hmm. and the way to have people thrive better by having cheap and reliable sources of energy. But talk about that whole growth from you know, burning fuels of you know, wood or other biomass or, or you know, uh, dung or whatever it would be through today where we're at. I'm mean, curious about your perspective on that. You mean in terms of the innovation across, you know, obviously when we're talking about, for example, energy transition, that could mean anything, number of things to anybody, but to, you know, certain people in India, it means not burning cow chips. Right. Right. About it, but I'm curious from someone who has more expertise than I do, obviously, you know, just the, the, the transition from, uh, you know, trying to heat yourself and your food <laughs> with, uh, you know, a, a campfire to mm -hmm. where we are today. Well, I mean, it's ultimately the story of innovation, right? Of human innovation. Even related to the oil and gas industry, you see this, right? We go from whale fat candles to, we like to say the petroleum industry saved the whales because they did, you know, to kerosene as a, as a sort of rational change. And, and it's not because it was forced. It's because it was, you know, related to utility, right? Yeah. And, and, and the cost, yeah. But innovation, I mean, this is one thing going back to graduate school. That was the other thing that was an utter shock to me, right? I almost had like a Paul Ehrlich type, type vision of, you know, scarce resources. And imagine my shock when I learn not only it, it just, it just isn't so, right? That if you graph the real prices of scarce resources versus time, in most cases, they decline. They don't go up. Even though you have increased usage, increased intensity of usage, you have more people. And it's because the thing that always wins is the thing between our ears. It is, it is the human mind. Yeah. And I think that's beautiful, by the way. It is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Uh, that was obviously one of the things you were so articulate about in our competition uh, is being able to, to identify that piece of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's oftentimes the thing that's missing. And it's sometimes difficult for people to grasp or to articulate. I mean, they, they see it all around them. You know, we live in one sense in a very artificial world where we, we someone, not necessarily we or me, but someone created these amazing products that, we, that make my life more comfortable uh, and more able to have a full life as a human mm -hmm. being. And it's someone using their mind, someone, uh, as you said, using that thing between their ears to think differently, to say, here, let's solve a problem. Let's, let's make this better in some way or another. And, and that is one of the crucial aspects uh, that people don't make that connection with with regard to capitalism. They, they see the, the, you know, the benefits, the products, the material mm -hmm. wealth, and, and they're cynical about that. Uh, they m maybe enjoy it, but they're cynical about that, not, not really fully appreciating the human mind, the energy, the, the, the passion behind trying to solve a problem of some right, kind or another. Right, right. I mean, and I think you've mentioned this before, even on this podcast, right? Capita, capita, yeah. caput, head, right? Yeah. 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 It's yeah. appropriate. 
Yeah, but that's one of the reasons why I'm I'm still fighting for uh, keeping the keeping the word. I mean, there, it's amazing how uh, there are plenty of people who are good and reasoned understanders of, and to some degree, defenders and champions of free markets, but they don't want to use the word capitalism because it has a tinge. You know, it doesn't pull well. Right. Uh, but right. I'm still fighting for making sure we keep that word because it, it is connected. The etymology is connected to the to human mind, the the head, the you know, the the thought, the, right. the thinking. There was recently a interview, Douglas Murray does it, I think it was called Uncancelled History. Douglas Murray, do you do you listen to different podcasts? And, and, yeah, uh, of course. Who's your favorite uh what, what are some of the ones you'd recommend to our listeners? Although it, maybe I'll I'll, I'll, I'll reserve the right to edit that out. If I'm <laughs> I mean, I really like anything of Thomas Sowell, and he—that's not actually a podcast, right? But he, because he rarely gives interviews. Yeah. But everything with Thomas Sowell in it, I find utterly fascinating. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's amazing how many people are unaware of Thomas Sowell and and the kind of contribution he's had to to our political economy, the the whole discipline, and you know, it's unfortunate because he doesn't. He doesn't give too many interviews anymore. He doesn't travel. I mean, mm-hmm. we've tried to get him to the, the leadership program of the Rockies events, and mm-hmm. uh, it's just difficult to get the guy, but he's, he's a powerhouse. He's probably the best, one of the very best uh, minds in economics and, and social sciences today. Who else do you listen to or read? You love this. I actually have a set of books that I love so much that I keep extra copies to give to people. Probably the first book that I was ever like, this is fantastic. Um, it's by a woman named Marilyn Vossavant. Mm-hmm. It's called Powerological Thinking. She wrote it in the mid-90s Now, or wasn't so. she like the, the newspaper? Uh, Ask Marilyn. Ask Marilyn. Yeah, <laughs> she, has, she has the highest IQ ever recorded, which That's is right. incredible. And it's actually by a lot. You know, the average IQ is 100. I'm not some IQ essentialist, but, you know, the average IQ is 100. Genius points 140. Hers was measured at 228. Wow. What she really did is she scored a perfect score on the adult Stanford Binet IQ test when she was 10. And so she maxed out the test <laughs> is what ultimately happened. But that book has an incredibly fascinating section in it called How Politicians Exploit Our Innocence. Really? Yes. What's the title of the book? The Power of Logical Thinking. Huh. How long, of a, how long of a book is it? It's not a very long book. I think it's probably maybe 250 pages. It goes over a lot of, you know, people ask her stuff and her responses to it. But this, this chapter this in, uh, about politicians is incredibly fascinating. Huh. I'm going to have to pick that one up. Uh, this is fantastic. Uh, there's a lot of times people recommend things I've already read. I, I am familiar with the woman and her high IQ. I, I, you know, I was interested in Mensa and things like mm. that, and so knew knew about her from that standpoint. But the power of logical thinking by Marilyn it's Vincent Vassavant. Vassavant, right? I'm gonna have to write that one down and, and make sure I listen to it or, or read it soon. Any other titles by her that you'd recommend? Um, that's probably the best one. That's probably huh. the best one. Who else do you listen to, like podcast wise? Aside from the defenders of capitalism. Right, obviously, right. <laughs> I, you know, I can't really think of anybody else. I mean, I, I usually do YouTube videos, and so it's Dave Rubin. I've kind of, I mean, we should probably edit this bit out. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, Dave, I'd be curious about your thoughts about Dave Rubin. Dave Rubin. I mean, I like Dave Rubin, but it just seems like it kind of fell apart a little bit, and it kind of... Why is that? I agree. I, I, I wonder sure. what happened there. I mean, because he seemed like he was really hot for a while. Right. And 
I like his manner. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's a pro it's, in terms Absolutely. of being able to do that kind of a production and make people think. Um, but I don't know if it was like an ideological thing that he just kind of, uh, and it seems like he lost, maybe it's because he lost me or you, but it lost his audience or didn't really mm-hmm. kind of capture the moment right. that he had. Right, right, right. I listen often to your own Brooks stuff. Yeah. Um, I really like, he had this incredible discussion about art, mm-hmm. which was fantastic. Yeah, Euron's a hero. Great. He's uh, for those who are not familiar with who we we're talking about. Euron Brook is the he's actually now the chair of the Ayn Rand Institute. He comes and speaks to our, our leadership programs both in Colorado and Connecticut frequently. And I, I don't know I don't know he doesn't like what I say this, but I don't I don't think there's a, a better someone who's more capable in terms of both defining and understanding and persuading people about free markets and capitalism than than Euron Brook. Mm-hmm. And so I, I highly recommend his Euron Brook show. I listen to it frequently, and it sounds like you do too. And he, and he covers a lot of different ground. It's not just about uh, economics. In fact, a lot of times it's about uh, cultural things. Sometimes he covers politics, but uh, oftentimes it's about art, you know, mm-hmm. aesthetics, things like that. So I highly recommended him. Um, so what do you do for fun? <laughs> I read. <laughs> I read a lot, actually. Um, you know, I've always been that kind of person. I have this kind of insatiable appetite, I guess. To, to learn new things. It's harder as you get older, I feel like, to, to be genuinely surprised by something new. But, um, you know, I almost can't describe the unmitigated joy I feel at learning something that is genuinely surprising. That's fantastic. Me. So do, yeah. do you read a lot of nonfiction or fiction or both? Nonfiction. I re- I re- it's very rare that I read fiction. Um, I'm trying to remember the last thing I actually read that was fiction, to be frank about it. Uh, recently read The Cave in the Light, Plato versus Aristotle and the struggle for the soul of Western civilization. Which Highly I recommend was very that good. book. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really really good for for people who are not necessarily really into philosophy, um, but want kind of a survey of mm-hmm. history. And whether you're an advocate of Aristotle or Plato, I think a lot of times people will acknowledge that you know that's sort of a fundamental battle throughout history, mm-hmm. and, and it's their influence that sometimes. Uh, will determine a certain culture or in a, in a certain geography based on whether they accept more of an Aristotelian approach or a, a Platonic approach. That's a fantastic book. Actually, I, mm-hmm. I should go back and read that again. Um, anything else you'd, you'd say that people who are listening should... I mean, this is your chance to like pontificate and, and tell people, people... Talk to the people and All give right. them your recommendations. I mean, almost anything by, by Thomas Sowell. I mean, you know, after Marilyn Vosavant, the thing that really started the sort of my revolution of mind, I guess I'll call it, even though it was a, it was a short revolution in terms of it didn't take very long or much, uh, Thomas Sowell's Economic Facts and Fallacies. Yeah. Right? So when did that occur? I mean, you said it was pretty quick, but when did you actually have that kind of a awakening, so to speak, in terms of uh, economic thought? Sure. Essentially college. And, and the thing that I suppose was the most interesting to me is, you know, I had gone through life previously just assuming that all of these people with PhDs, they know exactly what they're doing. They know mathematics. And imagine my surprise when I was rather abruptly disabused of that notion. It, it actually amazes me. What, what do you mean, like uh, like in, in uh, at Mines or in, in an academic setting where you're like, this guy is a professor or a PhD, he doesn't know what the fuck. Well, the I, I, I really mean in, in by reading Soul, right, It you just realize that there's oversimplification going on. Mines was delightfully apolitical. So it, you know, 
chemistry is chemistry. I mean, there's there's not a lot of is that still true? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. You know, math is apparently racist. Yeah, um, which is, I think, one of the most tragic things I've ever I've ever heard. Right. Yeah. Because I think it 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 will rob young brown and black kids of an opportunity, probably the best opportunity, to to you know improve their lives yeah i don't think it's i mean there is certainly on the right and in conservative circles there there are people who who throw up big red flags and 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 it is a red flag i mean the the both the political influence on every aspect of our lives and and the you know the philosophical um movement that's really changing the way people look at education mm-hmm. It's not good. Um, I don't. Hopefully, it's not as bad as sometimes the news, or at least the news on the right shows it to be. Mm-hmm. But, but it is really tragic. I mean, when you talk about that kind of thing, is you know, math itself is racist, or the or the, even the term objectivity is is somehow uh, a tool of oppression. You know, right. um, it really does, like you say, rob people, no matter what color or race they are, right. from being able to say, "Let me evaluate the world and use my mind." Um, to evaluate the world and and to make progress in my life, to be able to make uh, to solve problems that I have and to to improve my life, uh, I agree with you. Again, I think I think we've probably hit you know sort of that peak peak wokeism, mm-hmm. peak irrationality about the, the the world, but I'm not certain. And and even if you hit a peak, there can be a time period where it feels like it's even get worse. Uh, but hopefully, we're, we're past that point. Do you have thoughts on you know the whole social, cultural wars that that are going on right now? You know, quote culture wars. Well, I, I mean, I, I I do have thoughts, but uh, the question is what I want to say. I think that what's on the horizon is sort of an internal war amongst. I think I think there's going to be a war between the gays and the theys, right? The gays and the who? The, the gays and the theys. So the gays, literally homosexuality is defined in terms of gender, right? And then you have the theys that are the kinds that start to argue gender as a social construct and doesn't exist. And I think, both tend to be on the left, I think there's going to be an outright war between those two, um, even though I, uh, you know, I, I, I do. I think that's interesting. I am curious about that. You know, the, 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 those kind of social, cultural battles are such, in, they're in our face right now. And you strike me as someone who's thoughtful about um, you know, what's going on in the world. And so I'm curious about how you, how you interpret it, especially from the standpoint of a scientific mind, having an appreciation for uh, freedom, and then how, we, how we're dealing with all these bizarre issues. Uh, right. I'm curious about that. Well, you know, to me, to just broach, the, for example, the transgender subject, I think the way I see it is I think that there are several different groups involved, right? First of all, people who are actually transgender, um, which from my understanding is broadly biological. There's there's some stuff that goes on in the womb that would tend to result in this. Um, and then you have people who are sort of, they're uncomfortable with their gender, but they might not be transgender. And then you have the activists who are probably neither. Um, and they're trying to sort of wholesale, tell everybody else what to do. And, and, so, you, and you think that's just like, because they get a kick out of telling what people, I mean, it's a power I, thing? I, you know, I don't know if it's a power thing. It's entirely possible it is. It could be, they think they're virtue signaling in a positive way, yeah. but you can't transition away from something that doesn't exist, right? And so you can't argue that gender doesn't exist. 
And, you know, this, this assertion, and I know the assertion they make, they do say sex and gender are separate. But that's not how those words were originally used, right? You know, gender became a proxy for sex when, I'll use the, the left's own words, the pearl clutchers didn't like the fact <laughs> the that the word clutchers. sex was being used to mean physical intimacy. And so they came up with another word, right? Gender just means kind. But uh, that's not how those words were originally used. and They were not separate. But with respect to, you know, what adults care to do, you know, how they want to present, more power to anybody who wants to do anything. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And, that, and, and that's, that's the thing that uh, I think anyone who really does understand the whole issue of individualism and rights, it's having an appreciation for people being uniquely individual mm-hmm. and then saying, okay, here's someone who I find interesting and I want to deal with, or I don't. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want to deal with that person. I, they're somehow a threat to me or they have nothing to offer me and I don't want to deal, deal with them. But the person who understands that issue of rights uh, properly understands, I always have to put that and you know, uh, uh, qualify it because I think there's too many people who, don't, who are unclear on what rights are. Right. We talk about this in our Defenders of Capitalism program, try to define both capitalism itself as a system of rights, rights respecting. I, I feel like sometimes that's just a duplication or, or just to say, no, a capitalist system is one that actually just respects people's rights. And, and that means, you know, having a right to act and then to, mm-hmm. to reap what you sow, so to speak. But you don't have the right to other people's stuff and you don't have a right to, which means it has all kinds of consequences mm-hmm. with regard to, you know, the way we organize society, you don't have a right to an education. You don't have a right to healthcare. You don't have a right to a dignified retirement or a Learjet. You don't have a right to any of those things unless you earn them. But if you do, then they're yours and you can decide what to do with them uh, as long as you're not violating someone else's rights. I don't know. I'm kind of kind of on a rant here about just making sure we inject that into our conversation, which and you're kind of shaking your head. This is old news to you, but, but it's interesting when it applies to these cultural wars mm-hmm. about how people are trying to put people in, in boxes and operate, I think, oftentimes out of, a, out of a, a certain kind of fear. Right. But you don't strike me as someone who's necessarily the prototypical conservative. I don't know if you call yourself a conservative. No, I, I you know, I, I was thinking about this on the way here. I'm like, I, I don't know that I label myself much of anything because to me, it doesn't even operate that way, right? I have these sets of things which I, that I believe that I view are consistent with each other. And whatever that gets called, it is what it is. So you can call me a libertarian, even though I think that there are some mistakes there, for sure. Um, you can call me conservative, I suppose. So what are the, what are the mistakes that you think uh, are inherent in the whole libertarian view? So I, I feel like, um, and you know, I used to believe this, right? When I was in high school, I read Thomas Friedman's The Earth is Flat, and he also wrote The Lexus and the Olive Tree, as I recall. Um, and I bought wholesale sort of the McDonald's theory of conflict resolution, right? Two countries that are so intertwined with each other that they have McDonald's will never fight a war. And I think it misses something. And I think that thing that it's missing is the intent of the of the. Uh, one the states, right? I don't think for a single second, you know, based on the way the Chinese Communist Party behaves, that they care one iota about that. I think they care about power, but I'm not sure they connect that directly to, you know, economic power for their citizens. I think that it is all about power for them. So that's that's so where you I say, diverge. This is interesting. Going into China a little bit, uh, would you say that the Chinese Communists um, they don't really care about their citizens so much, but they care about keeping their power. But to keep their power, they got to continue to have this sort of economic engine that they've they've they're now 
beneficiaries of, at least by having opened up their society some. Mm-hmm. That's my causal explanation. Uh, you know, I, I believe that in one sense, you know, over the last 50 years, the Chinese communists have moved more toward, at a different, at a faster pace, mm-hmm. toward freedom. Not lately, certainly, right. but over the last 50 years that they actually were headed the right direction, whereas many Western cultures were going the wrong direction. And now that you see that, mm-hmm. oh, they're really competition for us. Well, right. right. Obviously, they've reversed themselves. I think it's obvious yeah. that they've reversed yeah. themselves, and now they really are kind of revealing themselves to be much more uh, caring, less about rights, and, and really even in any kind of economic freedom, unless it serves the state. Mm-hmm. Um They've they've got to get off the tiger, yeah, right, as they say, right? yeah, and, and and you know, that, and that's a good example to to come full circle with that question about you know libertarians. I think you're right. Libertarians don't always see things that clearly about, especially in the area of foreign policy. Mm-hmm. I think they're too isolationist. Yeah. On that regard. So what makes uh, what makes a person just right, you know, or an ideology just right in the way of isolationism? Right. One of the primary purposes of a, of a sovereign state is defense. Yeah. Right and what is required on that front is, I mean, you don't give wholesale, you know, carte blanche to the state, but, you know, what is required on that front is an active military. And I feel like the, you know, does that mean necessarily that we need however many bases, 130 something odd bases in the world? No, not necessarily, right? But I think that they're, they're, they're too, right? There's a level of I guess you would call it multiculturalism to bring it to kind of, although I hate that word, I prefer to use postmodernism, but, you know, where, you know, if they want to do that, then just let them do it. Well, that's fine. But, I mean, in the context of defense, that's, you have to be really careful. Yeah, we're we're confronted with more difficult issues today, and maybe this is always the case, but mm-hmm. when you talk about defense, you know, this whole... Russian invasion of Ukraine is making American people uh, and their ideological pockets think more or hopefully think more. And uh, it's interesting when you talk about libertarianism or conservatives mm-hmm. um, or, or classical liberals or liberals or progressives or whatever it might be, and how, how they've kind of flip-flopped in some ways about that issue of, of defense. Because yeah. you know, for a long time, it was the right, the conservatives, the people— you know, who were the Republicans or whatever who would be really uh, saying uh, P- Putin's bad news, the, the, the Russians are bad, and we should, you know, beef ourselves up against them. And now it seems like they're aligning with, more with on the Russians. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's the same thing with the progressives or the leftists. They've, mm-hmm. They were for a long time very amenable to, you know, the whole socialist communist experiment. Mm-hmm. And now they're the ones who are saying, no, we got to really fight for uh, the Ukrainians against the, the Russians. It's interesting how that's happened. Yeah, it, it, it utterly befuddles me, I have to say. Yeah. It's a tough thing right now to say, how, what's the end game there? And mm-hmm. you know, neither one of us, I'm certainly no expert on foreign policy or military strategy, um, but I have opinions as it relates to, okay, this is what a free society does, and this is how we interact with our friends. But I am, I don't know if I'd say befuddled, but I think it's a difficult question to say, okay, how does this thing end mm-hmm. without, you know, continuous and maybe increased right. um, involvement from the West and specifically the U.S. in terms of making sure Ukraine doesn't go down. Right. Especially right. when you have alliances, you know, China and maybe Iran uh, mm-hmm. really beefing up the, the inept Russian uh, attempt at... <laughs> 
as what they've been attempting. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a it's a sad state when there when you've got that kind of thing going on in the world. But that's where we're at. Freedom lovers everywhere should be thinking about okay, how does this thing end, and and what what do we as freedom lovers advocate for? I wanted to come back to the issue of energy. I also wanted to just make an insertion here, just to remind people if, if you like these conversations. I mean, we we've got you know a regular podcast going right now. Uh, typically, we're releasing one every other week. Sometimes we have distinguished guests like Clay on, but if you like them, hopefully you're sharing this with your friends. And by all means, if you have ideas that you want to be discussed on a podcast that actually is dealing with the issue of capitalism and freedom and rights protection, as we've talked about, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, you know, We've got a website, defendersofcapitalism.com. Reach out to me. Let us know what you'd like to hear or what, you, what you're not liking to hear, but uh, hopefully you're enjoying this and sharing it and helping us promote the message. Uh, we are expanding. We've gotten many new listeners in the last several months, and we have ideas on how to make it a better program. So uh, please stay involved and engaged. Clay, I wanted to go back to this issue of uh, energy, kind of energy and politics. Um, I sent you a notice about a new Colorado law. And it's interesting because it's it's something that's come up recently with regard to multifamily housing and larger buildings. But the, the new law is basically saying if you have a building, whether it's an apartment complex or presumably even a government building or any kind of business that is over 50,000 square feet, you now have to change and convert that method of heating that building from natural gas or other fossil fuels to electricity. And I mean, first of all, it's, you know, again, it's the force of government saying, here's how you need to do things. Now, presumably it's under this whole auspices of, you know, emissions, you know, we got to eliminate emissions, but, but help me out here. I mean, do people act like electricity just comes from the wall? Like you just plug things in and magically you have some electricity and some energy and there's no emissions anywhere that resulted in that? I mean, that, that's exactly the assumption that seems to have been made, right? That, 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 that coal plant near Fort Morgan out there on the Easter Plates doesn't exist. Is it just one of those things where people, okay, if I don't see it, it doesn't exist? I, I think so. I mean, yeah. it's, it's fascinating to me. And it, it, I mean, to me, this is Colorado has uh, moved markedly left. Uh, over the years, I've been here all my life, and you have too, and we've, we've both seen this. But it seems like the, the legislature has gotten more and more irrational with regard to some of the things that they're pushing. And I, I don't understand it at all. I mean, how, and will they do carve outs? Will they say, okay, well, this government building to really keep it warm, they're not going <laughs> to change that? I mean, will they, will they enforce that uh, consistently? Do you have any other thoughts on that? I don't know if you're aware of that law before I sent it to you, but it's just insane. You know, it's it's a molehill in the Himalayas. You know, setting aside all of you know any any type of alarmism or anything like that, they are they are addressing a molehill amongst the a molehill amongst the Himalayas. You know, you know China in 2020 approved on average two coal power plants every week. That's 104 power plants. You know, your gas stove is immaterial. You know, faced with the emissions from you know, 104 coal power plants. And it is, you know, with respect to CO2, at least, it, it is China and India that will be... Do you think it's just decisions. naivete on the part of Americans? They just have not been educated with regard to, you know, how energy works and how emissions work around the world. Um, they, I mean, have they just been brainwashed? 
I think so. I, you know, it's, it's, I think part of it too is there's a, the type of thinking you would use for economics is it just doesn't seem to be taught. Critical thinking seems to be completely gone, right? There's no, everything is reduced to a soundbite rather than the complex sophistication required to actually understand what's going on. And so we get, you know, laws that are based on sound bites. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tragic. So, so on that energy theme, do you have any thoughts about innovation, new technology, nuclear energy? Um, I'm curious about your thoughts there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be uh, a nuclear physicist because I was fascinated by fusion. Unfortunately, uh, that hasn't really gone very far, to be frank about it. And, you know, there were some shenanigans played with Eider's approval, to be frank about it, because I remember being told it would be the f first power plant in the world to be net positive. Well, the thing that was missed is it's only net positive with respect to the plasma in the chamber, not the reactor itself. And so it won't even be connected to anything. It won't generate electricity. But there are some areas of hope. Um, and this was going to surprise people. The largest industrial user of CO2 on the planet is the oil and gas industry. We use it for the purpose of enhanced oil recovery. And with direct air capture technology, which the big companies are working on, Exxon, Chevron, Shell, it is possible to have carbon negative oil. So to slow down a little bit here. When you say net capture and, and carbon negative, kind of so, slow down right, and walk so, us through that. So direct air capture is literally scrubbing CO2 out of the atmosphere, compressing it, and, and, and then using it. And so the oil and gas industry uses it for enhanced oil recovery. And we've actually been using CO2 for you know, decades um, for this purpose. But the CO2 has come from the ground. By using direct air capture, you scrub it out of the atmosphere. It's no longer a greenhouse gas. Um, no longer a greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. And then you can actually, it's miscible in oil. And so it allows you to sweep more oil out of the pore spaces. And even when, you, so when you're done extracting oil, you can actually pressure that system up with CO2 and store it there permanently because it's already proven that it can hold, um, supercritical CO2 is both kind of a liquid and a gas, but it can hold um, fluids for extremely long periods of time. I mean, the oil and gas have been there for millions of years. So it is possible using direct air capture and EOR in order to produce one barrel of oil, you actually use more CO2 than that barrel of oil will create by being burned in the atmosphere. Huh, fascinating. So it, what are the challenges with that, that kind of technology so right now? It is all related to the direct air capture. It's kind of an immature technology. It needs to be scaled quite a bit in order for it to work. But I know they're working on it really hard. And as a general matter, I wouldn't bet against the oil and gas industry um, when it comes to innovation. I know people are surprised that, I mean, they think it's some archaic sort of industry, but it's, it's just not true. It's, there's a lot of research that goes on in the oil and gas industry, including one, might I add, that benefits us all. Our, our phones all have lithium-ion batteries in them. Teslas all have lithium-ion batteries. The original patent for the lithium-ion battery is held by Exxon. Huh. Uh, the guy in particular uh, was named Stanley Whittingham. It's 1977 when the patent was acquired. And he, uh, along with Akira Yoshino and John Goodenow, won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2019 for it. Huh. Fascinating. So, um, you know, you talk about how, and it's fun to listen to you, anyone talking about innovation or just solving problems. And it sounds like you feel like the oil and gas industry is still very healthy in that regard. 
there's still that spirit of solving problems, innovation, new ideas. But is that being, I mean, it seems like there's been a war on oil and gas for the last really uh, 10 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. And is that having an impact in terms of both the energy that uh, and passion that people come to, you know, the new people who are entering the field and certainly the investment capital that goes mm -hmm. into it. Is Absolutely. that having an impact now? I think so. Uh, you know, it also, I think, tends to impact just the raw number of personnel, right? The new engineers, you know, when they've been sort of fed this lesson their whole life that the oil and gas industry is Satan, it's, you know, well, Satanists and devil worshipers, <laughs> uh, you know, they, they don't tend to like to go into um, the industry. Right. And so, I mean, naturally, the, the number of, you know, graduates is pretty variable. The industry is actually highly cyclic, right? But I, I think it does have an effect. Um, nonetheless, I think, you know, there are a lot of really smart people in the industry, and they're very, very clever people and people who are willing to absolutely innovate the heck out of it and, and who, to some degree, want an outright technological brawl. That's interesting that you yeah. put it that way, a technological brawl. Right. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's an intellectual brawl, but applied intellectual brawl. Mm -hmm. Right. I like that. That's good. Um, well, I did want to circle back to, to nuclear energy. Um, from an investment standpoint, mm -hmm. anyone who looks at the world tries to look at the world in terms of fundamentals and says, well, for all this good stuff to continue to happen, we need energy. So energy is a really fundamental in industry. It's a requirement for the, the kind of way we live and the, the kind of mm -hmm. human thriving that goes on. And there's always this search for, okay, how do you do this better? And, and, and that's kind of what I was asking you about in terms of the, is there the passion, energy, and entrepreneurial sp spirit still going on in the, the oil and gas industry? But to my understanding, nuclear energy could solve a lot of the problems that we have in the first place. Absolutely. And there is some decent... Uh, innovation going on that, including, you know, a company who builds these small, compact nuclear reactors. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about that. They, they can't use them really in the U.S. because of our whole regulatory regime mm -hmm. and, the, and the sort of fear that's gone mm -hmm. on about all of nuclear energy for, you know, since, you know, Hiroshima or mm -hmm. whatever it is. Right. Um, and I'm wondering if you know much about and have thought much about in terms of nuclear energy from that standpoint, that just the, the next step of, okay, you really do care about the environment and emissions, and okay, there are some challenges with regard to fossil fuels, hydrocarbon, burning hydrocarbons, so the next stage is nuclear, but no, we can't go there because we have all this fear. I mean, that's absolutely right. I mean, there, there is a, with respect to large power generation and meeting baseloads, an extant technology and it is nuclear energy. And in fact, you know, the, this fear over meltdowns, you know, since, I can't remember how long it's been since we built a nuclear reactor in this country. It's been decades. But, you Well, know, I heard something the other day where uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Authority, NRA, I guess it's an acronym, you know, the, mm -hmm. Washington has this alphabet soup, all these different regulators, but they have never approved a new nuclear facility. So all the ones that actually were yep. started were, were actually... Yeah, they yeah. they got started before that. Yeah, even. yeah, I you know it's in theory there are technologies that mean you cannot melt down a nuclear reactor. These pebble bed reactors that that uh, they came up with, and so it does seem that there's an immense amount of irrational fear there. But you know, it kind of in a way it reminds me of the, the debate about oil and gas, right? You have this sort of linear 
no threshold hypothesis, I think is what they call it, where anything that is bad in any amount is bad in every amount. Yeah. And I mean, there's a huge counterexample, which is sunlight. But uh, I think that there's just, it, it's fear-driven, absolutely. The response to nuclear is fear-driven. So that partly want, makes me want you to talk about education, if you have any opinions about education. But also, you mentioned before, you know, just the, the, the regulatory environment that we have with regard to energy and science more generally. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we, we don't do science right. I mean, that's the way I interpret it. Maybe that's mm-hmm. putting words in your mouth. But, but I want you to talk more about that. Um, why is politics so thoroughly invasive now of how we do science? Well, primarily because it's the politicians that fund a lot of it. You know, Colorado School of Mines is actually quite proud of the fact that uh, a lot of its research funding is private, but my recollection is it's only about 20%. Yeah, yeah. I, and that's, that is a high number for, for mm-hmm. lots of universities. I mean, my, my understanding is that 90-plus percentage of all science funding really is through universities and mm-hmm. therefore controlled by government. And so then there's a natural reaction. If you have that happen, it, you're turning it into, well, okay, how do we make decisions? And we're going to do it through a political uh, right. scenario. Absolutely, absolutely. And there are some pretty serious structural problems. And I know, you know, many scientists are aware of them. The question is, what is to be done about them? One of the biggest things that they found out, this is a really nice thing about meta-science, you can actually do really sophisticated studies and you can kind of show whether or not groups of people are not publishing based on the, the hypothesis testing parameters they use. But, you know, what's been going on is there's also a positive result publication bias, and this essentially obliterates science in its entirety. It seems like such a small thing, right? But there's this famous probability problem, right? If I have a drug test and it's 95% accurate, and I'm looking for, I'm testing people for whether or not they do drugs, and let's say 5% of the population does drugs, right? Given, given that you flash hot for the drug, what is the statistical likelihood that it's a false positive? 50% with a 95% accurate test. And it, this is what's basically happened to the scientific community. They're publishing only the positive results, and so you could just flip a coin it doesn't matter, right? And that's not the way science is supposed to work. It's not supposed to be just some recitation of where anybody can go to have their preconceived biases reinforced. It's supposed to be far more rigorous than that. And part of the problem is no results are rarely published. Yeah. And that's a big deal. And it seems like, so, I mean, it's, it sounds so benign, but it's actually a serious so, problem. So, I mean, do you have uh, opinions or thoughts about how that gets reversed? So there have been some journals that what they've started to do is pre-publication approval. So basically you submit your plan, they will publish your study however it comes out. And that's the kind of thing it needs to move towards, I feel like. Um, You know, fortunately, uh, in engineering at least, engineers don't tend to do hypothesis testing of this kind, or technical papers, even lots of them, right? Uh, They're just not written in that way. But you know, psychology, even, you know, it's, it, it's kind of surprising. Particle physics can have problems, even though particle physics has really aggressive standards um, for what is considered a statistically significant result. So the argument against that would be, well, we're going to get a bunch of crap. Uh, you know, if people are, are getting this pre-publication, they're getting sort of like a flood of maybe not such great research in the first place. And we got to have, we got to, Come on, we got to have some standards here. Is that is that would that be the the major objection that people would have to that? Well, I I think that you know I, 
I think that the way it is now is effectively no standard is the problem. I that's mean, right. That's right. I, so, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's it's an effective argument on, on anyone's part. Yeah, I say. think it's relevant. And I don't know, maybe this is not the best connection, but uh, yeah, the whole issue, and we did an episode, I don't know if you heard it, but uh, on the FDA. And, mm-hmm. and they're basically in the business of trying to prevent new innovations in, in medi- medicine, right. in my view. Um, and they've, they've really cost a lot of uh, cost a lot in terms of our ability to help people in, in right. across a whole spectrum of the diseases or health assets. And it's because of the, the non-risk-taking environment of a bureaucracy. Right. That's what right. happens. Right. Um, and, but but the, the critique of that is, well, what? We need to have this FDA. We've got to have standards. We've got to have... We gotta have. We can't have anybody just trying things. Right. But there's no reason it has to be the FDA is the thing, right? right? Private industry can certify anything uh, probably better and in a way that makes more sense. Right. In fact, this happens in the oil and gas industry. So even though it's never required by any, you know, regulatory agency, all of the uh, drillers out on the rigs are certified in well control, and that's it's basically what the the people who have the rig. And the operators demand, independent of what any regulator says. And so that kind of certification can be privatized, I think, easily. Yeah. Um, I know that there will be people that say, oh, well, it's biased. But right now, it's no better than any of that. So, <laughs> Yeah. Incentives matter across the board, mm-hmm. and, and biases are there. And the question is, you know, who, who are the truth seekers and who, what are their incentives to, to continue to discover the truth? Right. Um, but you get all that. I mean, you know, one of the things I, I really appreciate is your continual involvement in the program, in the, in the leadership program of the Rockies. Uh, you're, you've, uh, uh, from what I can gather, been a real influence on a number of people who were in your class and, and the succeeding class. You're involved in the mentor ambassador program. Definitely appreciate that. Tell me more about your experience there. So um, it's fantastic, right? I mean, the, the Denver County group and, and you know, H. Paul... We have every month after the class, we get together at his house and we have this very nice dinner and we talk and, and, and it goes, you know, you don't have to stay late, but people can stay late. And it's just, it's, it's absolutely delightful. And, you know, seeing, you know, some of these, I guess I'll call them students, you know, evolve through time has been incredibly interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I really appreciate you, you staying involved that way. Um, this has been fantastic. I could go down so many rabbit holes with you. I probably there's some of them that I wouldn't be able to hang with you and wouldn't understand. Although I might be able to ask good questions about them, but uh, I really appreciate you being here, Clay. Tell me about the future for you. What what do you uh, what what does your career look like in the future? If we were sitting sure. here, you know, doing a podcast episode, kind of recapping the I don't know, say three years from now, um, and you look back at today, what? What kinds of things are you you wanting to do? What are your goals over the next few years? Sure. You know, I, I am very fortunate in that my job right now, I absolutely love it. Um, for the reason that it keeps me on my toes and I'm never bored by it. Um, we are going to expand as a company. And so I do see there's this sort of broadening scope of, of, of involvement, um, certainly with my company. As far as, you know, other things, I... I'm writing with Helen Mitchell, uh, something which is kind of a mild defense of the oil and gas industry. We're hoping that. Why so mild? Why don't well, be, be I, robust? I, well, it's it was Helen's idea actually. I barrel, um, and you know, she's I like a, it. I barrel. I barrel. 
You know, one thing that certainly I think very few people understand is the complexity of producing even a single barrel of oil, right? And and, and it gets complex. So eye barrel, that's sort of a reference to eye pencil. Or right, like right. Exactly. Showing, showing the whole family tree of a barrel of oil. I love it. That's fantastic. That's great. So do you see yourself, your role changing? You said you guys are expanding... We will expand. I, I don't know what their plans for me are. I mean, I, I have a group of um, two engineers that are under me. That will probably expand, uh, and then we'll, we'll we'll go to the races. But Does that mean more uh, people management? More people. And I will probably spend more time doing people management, which I kind of go back and forth on. I, I am a nerd. I do like the science stuff. <laughs> Well, again, thanks for being here. My name is Michael Williams, and you've been listening to our Defenders of Capitalism winner for 2022 and a a self-proclaimed nerd, very, very bright mind, very bright future. Thanks, Clay Doak. I really appreciate you being here. Hopefully you folks will continue to listen to and, as I said, spread the word about defending and championing the only moral socioeconomic system, capitalism. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. After review, Clay Doak would like to correct a statement made during the podcast. The oil and gas industry is the largest industrial user of CO2 in the United States, and the second largest user of CO2 in the world after the fertilizer industry. 